0: I do think it's worse for women, whether it's because, you know, an old-fashioned bully is always going to pick, you know, the perceived weaker sex. We're easy to bully. Um, Maybe there's an element that we shouldn't be doing those sorts of jobs anyway. I'm not sure, but certainly talking to colleagues, and when you look at the MPs that are standing down this time, there does seem to be, particularly young women, um, an over, sort of an increased um, number on that side, because clearly we've got balances in
1: life, and we've just come to the conclusion that it's not worth it. This letter reads, which I received here in this office, Cox was first, you were next, you treacherous, worthless, F-U-C-K-I-N-G, dead, slag. Every morning, obviously, you know, you turn the emails on um, and there's more stuff uh, that is um, rude, offensive. And I think, actually, a couple of weeks ago, my office referred something to me and they said, oh, I don't think this one's too bad, we won't go to the police. And I thought, crikey, we wouldn't have said that three years ago if we looked at an email like that.
2: Who would want to be an MP? That's a question that's been asked in Westminster and beyond as this election has kicked off. Female MPs from across the spectrum, across the political divide, have announced that they are not going to be seeking re-election, with some specifically citing the abuse they have received and the change in environment as a reason for standing down. In 2017, a study found that Over half of all online abuse was directed at female politicians rather than males, and it was particularly bad for minority groups. Yet despite this, all the main parties are proudly pushing the fact that they have lots of bright new candidates keen to enter Parliament should the election go their way. So to delve into this issue a bit deeper... On this election special of Women with Balls, I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and Conservative Home's Paul Goodman to discuss the issue. And then I'll be speaking to a range of candidates who are seeking election. Now, it's not abnormal for MPs to step down ahead of a new election. But when it comes to this election that we're currently in, um, it's been reported that a very high number of MPs have specifically female MPs. Um, Paul, is this irregular? Are we seeing a higher turnover than normal?
3: I think we're not seeing a higher turnover overall. So there's a very big turnover in 2010 after the expenses scandal. And often, uh, where you have something on that scale, that's, you know, hard to think of anything that is, you get a big changing of the guard. But overall, I think there is a significant, what you might call a sub-trend that you've just put your finger on, which is that Although the overall turnover rate may not be up, what is striking is the number of women leaving. I mean, I did a little very simple research, and you know, I found out that after uh, two thousand and fifteen, here's just a list of MPs who left after one term. Right, Aidan Burley, Lorraine Fulbrook, Jessica Lee, Chris Kelly, Louise Mensch. Laura Sands, Mike Weatherly. So that's more women than men left. So I then went on. I I looked at those stepping down for this election. Jeremy Lafroy, Sarah Newton, Joe Johnson, Claire Perry, Nikki Morgan. Now, you know, I don't think you need to be an arithmetical genius to see that overall higher number of women are stepping down than men. So there must be some significance in this somewhere.
2: Isabel do you think there is I suppose a universal reason for lots of these women stepping down or is it more individual because if you look at the various statements I mean Nikki Morgan did cite I think abuse and how it's changed since she's been an MP but then you also have Marguerite James who was talking I suppose more about Brexit and her relationship for her local association so what do you think we can take from it?
1: Yeah, I mean, all the MPs have different reasons that they cite for for going. But I think what unites them is that they all have quite a similar motivator for going, even if they don't necessarily state that in in their resignation letters. And I've I've spoken to a lot of them, uh, from all all the parties, actually. And I think that the best way of summing it up is, is, is them saying, is this really worth it anymore? And it's you know it's not just the online abuse it's not just trouble with your local party which is you know common <laughs> for for a lot of MPs and often is and has been for for, for a long time it's not just the, the feeling of sort of powerlessness over over Brexit it's it's the whole package which makes them then look at their family circumstances for instance and some of them have mentioned family circumstances including Nicky Morgan and think. Why am I bothering to do this when I don't feel like I'm having the impact that I hoped I would? And quite frankly, none of them would say this, but they could earn a hell of a lot more outside of Parliament in jobs they'll find more fulfilling that will allow them to see their children and have a marriage that's slightly more fulfilling than it tends to be when you're in Parliament. Most people you speak to in Parliament, whether male or female MPs, say that it has been... a a net cost to their marriage rather than a net benefit.
2: Paul, do you agree with that?
3: Because Isabel's done the proper research. Uh, She's spoken to people and she's spoken cross-party. I've just looked at the names. But I think if you look at the names and then put them in the context in which Isabel's put them, I think suggesting that women have somehow got a broader or deeper view of political life sounds to me broadly right. And you know, Isabel gave a big hint there about family responsibilities. I mean, uh, she will recognise several names on this list who've just thought, actually, you know, you know I could hang around the House of Commons for a, for, a, for a bit longer, I could carry on being a minister, I could be well plugged into the machine. But on the whole, I think the game's not worth the candle. Now, it is true, if you look at some of these names, like Sarah Newton going... Uh, See Kennedy going they are women who did very well under the Theresa May regime uh, but might not do so well under the Boris Johnson one nonetheless I think when you look at it as a, as a whole uh, and you look at it as Isabel does on the basis of some information that's undoubtedly right the women seem to have a kind of richer view of, of political life and their own lives than the men do.
2: Um, Paul, let's talk about the next intake of candidates, or MPs, actually, because Conservative Home has been running a very good tally and coverage of all this elections. How is it looking gender-wise when it comes to the Conservative Party? More
3: women. I mean, we've not done a count. Um, but That is undoubtedly a higher proportion than before. I think I'm right in saying that under Theresa May, it was about a fifth in 2017, down from about a quarter of new MPs in 2015. I'd be you know, interested to hear what Isabel thinks about this, but a question that arises for men as well as women is, given what we're describing, given the pressure of political life, given the effect on one's family, given the social media factor that Nikki Morgan has described, why does anyone want to do it?
2: Yeah, Isabel, what do you think we can glean from that? Because ultimately, If you look at the candidates being selected, it does look like there are lots of young women who are deciding that this is the career they want and entering competitive selections to get there. So it seems the environment isn't putting people off, at least, I suppose, on a larger scale.
1: Well, it's interesting because you talk to those who are involved in trying to get more women to become candidates and they do say it has had an impact, even though it doesn't look like it in terms of the supply of female candidates you're then getting selected Actually, that you know, I've spoken to a few people at sort of national level and local level who've said they've either spoken to candidates who said, you know, what I'm going to sit this one out, or uh, was speaking to, to to one candidate who got to know how toxic their local association was. And I mean, my goodness, I, I can't go into details about this, but but some of the things that were happening in terms of bullying w- were horrendous, and she just thought, you know what, you know, it's the same as the MPs who decided to leave. It is this worth it? Uh, But I think we are always going to have people who are highly motivated and who want to go into Parliament. And, you know, you are going, you've got a really great effort in the Conservative Party through Women to Win to get more women in and to help them through the selection process so that they can fight against the unconscious bias that panels still might have. I think what we're more likely to see is the rise of the sort of the 10-year, five-year MP who doesn't go into parliament for life and decides to move on to another career. And I think one of the things that probably isn't holding candidates back so much is that most would-be MPs have the same approach to going into parliament that a lot of us have to life and illness, in that we sort of think it's not going to happen to me. And I talked to lots of, uh, you know, for my first book, I spoke to a lot of of MPs who had been quite shocked by what the life had done to them. Some of them were even ex-special advisors. So they knew Westminster incredibly well. But what they hadn't been prepared for was the fracturing of their personal life, because, you know, however they chose to organise things with their family, whether they had their children up in the constituency or whether their children were in London, for half of the week, they weren't going to be around. And it's very easy to talk about that in the abstract and how, you know, I've talked to candidates who said, oh, we, you know, we talked about how we were going to have a date night once a week and all that sort of thing. And uh, that that tends to fall by the wayside once you're actually in Parliament and you're facing the reality of it. And you don't even know how you're going to handle, you know, the the online abuse until really you're getting it every day. You're being told you're useless every day. It's a very different thing to, to something in prospect, I think.
3: On the the point about the five to ten year MP, on the one hand, there's a plus. Constituents have never had MPs who work so hard as this generation. I don't believe it. But all these guys and girls, they are terrified of their constituents and with reason, because their constituents are demanding higher and higher consumer standards. And in one sense, it's a good thing. But in another, it's a very bad one. because you have a chamber that almost entirely consists of people who've only been there for five to 10 years and goes. Where's the person who gets up and says when a bill is being proposed, uh, we tried that, that didn't work. Or even better, we tried it and it didn't work, but it might work. If you tried A, B and C, it's like having a family where you have no older members uh, and you don't have anyone with experience in the family and say, just hang on a sec before you try that. Uh, Just bear this or that in mind. And you're endlessly condemned to repeating the, the hamster wheel circle of failure. So there's an up and a down to the five to 10 year MP rise, which Isabel is rightly noting.
2: Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Isabel. So now let's hear from the candidates who are vying to be MPs come December 12. What's it like fighting a seat which on paper you appear to have little hope of winning? Well, that's what Anaya Folim-Iman has to deal with every day as the Brexit party candidate for Leeds North East. The seat does not look like an easy Brexit party win. It voted to remain in the EU referendum and the main parties are ahead. However, she's holding out hope. So Anaya, you're standing for the Brexit party. I think it's safe to say in a seat that isn't seen as their most sure chance in the, in the general election. What made you go for it?
0: Yeah, I mean, this was the only seat that I actually wanted to stand in. I mean, I totally get it. It's a Remain seat. It's a Labour stronghold. But I think part of the kind of message that I'm trying to appeal to the voters there is a message of restoring trust, restoring democracy, restoring honesty into politics. And what I found is that that message kind of transcends people, whether you are leave or remain, whatever side of the political spectrum. I think there's almost unanimity across people that politics at the moment isn't working. So I've been really overwhelmed by how much of a positive response I've actually experienced. There's an assumption a lot of the time that all Remainers want to stop Brexit and are essentially like Liberal Democrats or something like that. But what I found there's a lot of people that vote to remain in this constituency that are just democrats and they believe that the referendum should be implemented so there's been support from a wide range of people
2: and you mentioned the the good reception you're getting there's been a lot in the news about i suppose how the atmosphere and the environment in politics has got a lot more hostile in recent years and some put it down to the general brexit debate did that put you off going into this at all
0: um, no, it didn't actually. And I, in in a way, I think that it even spurred me on more. I think that we are in a really heated political climate. But that's because we're, we're dealing with one of the most fundamental defining issues of British political age right now, and that is Brexit. And so I think that one of the ways in which we can kind of ease tensions is to enable as many people from all walks of life to get involved to show that it is not just a kind of polarising, situation based off of the the kind of two polar opposites of the political spectrum it's actually people from a wide range of backgrounds that do find Brexit to be a fundamental defining issue and personally this is the thing I mean I've had this conversation quite um, recently as well that as much as I've heard a lot about the kind of abuse and, and, and all of those kinds of things personally I haven't actually experienced much of that I've, I've experienced a lot positivity and i think the overwhelming majority of people want to have a kinder politics
2: now talk us through the average day of a brexit party candidate in her early 20s campaigning in a heavy remaining seat
0: (laughs) well the i mean the average day would be that i would put on a stall and have a few volunteers with me there and we'll do a stall for like a good four hours in kind of a a popular area in the constituency and i'll have loads of different people i have Many people are like, yeah, like, why are you doing this? Some people are like, oh, I'm definitely going to vote for you. And then you have a few people that are like, Brexit party is everything that I disagree with. And I'll be like, oh, OK, well, what, what do you disagree with? And then they'll kind of go, go in a half of the way <laughs> if I ask them a the question. And then, I mean, after that, usually doing some leafleting for a, a couple hours. And, and most of the time, that's really positive. You do get the odd person, like, basically pushing the leaflet back back outside of the door but <laughs> it's, it's just generally a, a typical election campaign in that respect
2: and have you managed to convince any voters who voted to remain in the EU referendum to vote for you in this general election
0: yeah I think surprisingly again I think I have because um I mean I've got obviously a digital footprint and obviously my name is out there and people often search my name and and find that you know I've done a bit of writing and I've made a few videos and that I'm not necessarily the kind of conventional person that typically goes into politics and actually I have a range of interests and ideas in in, a, in areas that I think can appeal to a lot more people beyond Brexit. I mean I've, I recently wrote an article in Brexit Central in terms of why I supported Leave and what I hope would come of it and some of the things that I talk about is fundamental political reform, constitutional reform and I think that there's there's a lot more uh, momentum gathering now about what's happening beyond Brexit. And I think that that's the message I think that resonates with people that didn't just vote leave.
2: Now, finally, you obviously have chosen to stand for the Brexit party. You didn't go for Mm. Labour or the Tories. Do you think that feeds to, I suppose, a general distrust with, I suppose, the main establishment as it is? Why was that? Because you, you could argue that had you... So as a candidate for the Tories, you might have a higher chance of getting into Parliament.
0: Well, I think that I, I really appreciate the Brexit Party slogan, which is changing politics for good. And I think that, yes, it, to change politics for good, you have to work within with existing structures. But also to do that, you have to challenge the establishment and challenge the existing structures that are there. And so for me to to stand from a, a mainstream party, to be honest, I, I do deeply disagree with a lot of the way that both the main political parties have behaved over the past you know, successive governments and, and decades and so that would be contradictory to a lot of the things that I would like to achieve in politics and that is political reform. Both of the two main parties are hardly talking about that at all and so I think that the Brexit party has, has been taking votes off of Labour, off of Conservative, all of the main parties and I think they're holding their feet to the fire and I think the Brexit party is kind of insurgent, it's a lot more radical, it's a coalition of people from all sides of the political spectrum and I think that that is That is the kind of thing that we really need to to hold both the main parties to account.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. Danielle Rowley was elected in 2017 as the Labour MP for Midlovian. Scottish Labour, if you look at the polls, appears to be having quite a difficult showing in this election, with support seemingly collapsing. At the moment, she is predicted, according to the MRP poll, to lose her seat to the SNP. Age 29, I caught up with her about why she's fighting this. So Danielle, thank you for joining us. You were elected successfully in 2017 and you're fairly young, you could say, for an MP. Were you 27 when you entered Parliament?
4: Oh, uh, yeah, I think I was. (laughs) It feels like a long time ago now.
2: (laughs) Yeah, now 29. Uh, (laughs) So before we get on to, I suppose, things now, I was wondering, when you entered Parliament, did anything surprise you in particular? I
4: think the whole thing was just really different from what I'd experienced before. I'd come from working for for a charity. So very, very different workplaces. But no, I think actually I was almost prepared for the worst and thought, you know, Westminster is going to be really oppressive and everyone will be terrifying and horrible. <laughs> And, you know, there's some people there that don't give the the biggest warm welcome, but actually I was surprised at the amount of really lovely people and colleagues and staff that were there to help you and welcome you and show you around when you get lost.
2: Yeah, and what we were talking about at the start of this podcast is there have been lots of headlines about the number of women, female MPs specifically, who have chosen not to seek re-election. And if you look at the various statements, it's not necessary that the number is massively up on previous years. But one of the things they are citing is how they feel the environment has changed. It's got more difficult. They talk a bit about the abuse an MP can get and the security measures. Has that been a factor for you? Have you noticed that get worse while you've been in Parliament?
4: I think that um, hearing from colleagues that have been in Parliament much longer, since 2017, it has gotten a lot worse. I, I suppose I don't really know any different in Parliament, but certainly I've faced more abuse than I I have done in any other workplace or at any other time in my life. and. Yes, it's it's definitely the first job I've had where I felt threatened and felt unsafe sometimes. And I think that with the past two and a half years um, being quite unstable in Parliament, the government not having a majority, it's meant we've had a lot of really, you know, strong three-line whips. We've not managed to have all of the recesses that we had scheduled. We've had a lot of late sittings. So... for for parents particularly um, and people with families I think it has been quite difficult the last term
2: and did you have any did you think twice at all about seeking re-election or you've always been sure despite some of the adversity I suppose that this is the career you want to be in I
4: think you know you do have to weigh up the the impact that you that your job has on your on your well-being on your family and friends and on your health and it certainly is something that i've thought about but it's it's weighing that up with how much you want to you know make a difference to your community and, and be able to help people and really change things so for me i decided you know i'm i'm young and uh, don't yet have a family so i thought i'll i'll stick at it and you know try and get reelected so i can make as much change as possible and i think i can understand why a lot of women wouldn't want to restand but at the same time, without having women and people from different backgrounds in Parliament, then we won't be able to change Parliament for people coming in the future. And that's really important to
2: me too. And before we just touch briefly on the campaign, one thing I wondered, um, I think we're, we're similar in age, and I just wondered, because growing up, I suppose, with social media, the Facebook generation, do you feel that like perhaps you're in a place where you're better suited to not I suppose deal with criticism online but perhaps it doesn't come as so much as a surprise than it does to those who just never really had that as a factor in their lives until now. Yeah I
4: think I'm um, of that funny generation where you know we grew up without the internet without social media but it has been part of our lives and um, so we were a bit you know used to it but not as much as I think future generations will be but yeah, I think it's it's a really strange thing because again, coming from um, working for a charity, you, you'd never really see the amount of abuse that goes on towards people who are, you know, at the end of the day, whatever party, trying to do what they think is right and the amount of personal abuse. And I think again, that's a, a difference between now and maybe years gone by. Politicians used to get attacked a lot more for their policies, whereas now we seem to get attacked in a very personal way. And I think that is possibly a big difference.
2: And just about the campaign now, obviously, uh, dark night's winter election. I've been in Scotland recently, so particularly dark, perhaps even earlier. How are you finding it on the doorstep? Because there's been some in the, you know, you look at polls suggesting that the Scottish Labour vote is struggling a bit. You know, it,
4: it's been really good and um, m- my favourite part of my job has been out and speaking to people in the community. So I'm really enjoying the campaign so I'm getting to chat to people and talk about local issues. As you say, it, it's dark, it's been really wet here, very cold and people on the doorsteps have really appreciated that we're going out and speaking to them and we're interested in hearing their concerns even when the weather is so bad. I've had quite a few offers for a cup of tea <laughs> But um, I'm really encouraged by the response from the doorstep.
2: And then the final question, and it may not have even come to mind, but I just wondered when you're going through a campaign like this, in, in a tough seat, you know, where, particularly in Scotland, obviously... Even the most comfortable majorities never look that stable. Have you had any thoughts about what you might do if if you are not re-elected? You know, as you say, you're in your 20s. So have you thought about your second career? Well,
4: before I was elected, I was working for a charity, a housing charity. And I hadn't really planned to be a politician. And I hadn't even really thought myself to stand in 2017 until I was asked to. So, I, you know, I've always wanted to do a job where I can help people and change things. And I want to be an MP because I think the best way to change things and help people is by changing the system so it works for them. So whatever I do, I, I want to, to keep doing that and keep being able to make change happen. So, you know, I'm really hoping that I do get re-elected because I've got a lot still to do to help people in my community and across the UK and Scotland but um, but yeah,
2: if not, then I'm sure I won't go very far. <laughs> Thanks, Danielle. Rebecca Smith is the Conservative candidate for Plymouth, Sutton and Devonport. She's a local and that seat will be a tough fight for the Conservatives to win. It is a Labour-Tory marginal. Labour won it in 2017 and the Tories won it in 2015. She's hoping to turn things around. So... Rebecca, we've had lots in the news about the reasons some long time, some perhaps short time um, MPs have decided that they don't want to seek re election. Lots of people point at a more toxic environment or at least the scrutiny you come under. What made you decide to stand for election?
5: Well, I've, I suppose, been interested in politics from way before social media times. So that whole interest. It's not exactly new. In terms of me standing myself, I suppose that stems back about four or five years, which, again, social media has has had a big increase in in the use in that time. So I think for me, it's, it's just not something that would put me off because I think, for me, politics is a bit of a vocation. It's something that I wonder if I've kind of been made for, if you know what I mean. And so to let a bit of kind of negative social media interaction stop me from doing that i think would potentially be quite a sad state of affairs actually and i think it's more about how i handle myself and how i discipline myself with social media rather than allowing it to to stop me from doing what I want to do
2: so you're not necessarily planning to if, if you are elected be a, a trigger happy uh, twitter heavy mp I mean I'm
5: on twitter quite a lot at the moment but I probably do I don't know five or six tweets a day maximum I'm not someone who's on it the whole day I like to be in a room rather than on my phone when I'm in meetings and things I think it's really useful but I understand that your audience is perhaps you know Journalists or people that already agree with you, so I think i'd be keener to use things like um Facebook to make sure that i'm communicating with constituents and again you just you just have to be disciplined what you read so this particular election i'm actually not reading the twitter comments i've got somebody on my team doing that because they get distracting and they you know, give you a, a wrong sense of what's actually going on in the world if you if you read what people are saying on. Yeah, there. you
2: can feel a little bit like you're going down a rabbit hole. And we're speaking to a few different candidates for this podcast, and they all are fighting in very different types of seats. Uh, one in what you might describe as a no hope seat. They insist they stand a chance. Then a traditional safe seat. Now you're in a Labour Tory marginal. Your seat was held by the Tories in 2015, but then Labour won it in 2017. So, what's at like an, an average day for you on the campaign so uh, you get up obviously in the morning and
5: make sure you're aware of what's been going on overnight seeing if there's anything that's likely to hit hit fan um, that morning and then we head out as a team um, in the morning we're on the doors I'm a massive believer in the value of canvassing I think Plymouth gets probably a massive proportion of canvassing compared to some parts of the country. So people here feel quite hard done by, I think, if they haven't had someone knock on their door, which is quite a nice problem to have, I suppose. So we do loads of conversations. We've hit tens of thousands of doors in the last three or four weeks. And we're just trying to have the conversations with people to convince them to come back to us this time. Some are telling us straight away that they already are. Others are a bit undecided. So we get to have some
2: really um, productive conversations. And just two last things firstly have you had to develop quite a thick skin knocking on doors I have followed a few MPs about and particularly in a marginal you obviously not getting an overwhelmingly positive response because I've been a candidate
5: for council before knocking on doors is nothing new so I'm kind of used to reading a person's face as they open the door and, and preparing myself for what's about to come this election actually hasn't been that bad because people in Plymouth feel so let down over Brexit because we've got a Remain MP who's fighting to to win the seat back that actually for us to be on the doors and to be able to say no we'll deliver on that usually wins them round and often I find people just want to to be able to share their their views and I've I'm quite happy to hear that I've worked in customer service jobs in the
2: past so I'm used to hearing what people think and then finally speaking of women in politics you've had a statue unveiled in in Plymouth Nancy Astor can you tell us a bit about that
5: Yeah, so for a year, an amazing team of women in Plymouth have been fundraising and sorting out a design competition, sorting out all the logistics of getting a statue erected on Plymouth Hoe to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Nancy Astor being elected by the people of Plymouth. And... It's amazing. I first came across Nancy Astor when I was in my late teens, I grew up here and did politics here and I wrote my dissertation, my history dissertation on women in the House of Commons and looked specifically at Nancy. So almost 20 years later it was amazing to be on the hoe yesterday to watch Theresa May unveil that statue and it's been an incredible legacy to fight this election on actually because that's what I want to do is understand the real challenges in our city and then find some serious solutions to them by working with the community, which up till this point our RMPs mps haven't always done in the same way
2: thank you rebecca claire Cotino has been selected as the conservative candidate for east surrey that's sam Gemer's old seat and he has defected to the liberal democrats and is now standing in kensington on the surface this is one of those plum tory seats there is a lot of competition for so if claire wins it she effectively could have a seat for life so, Claire, you're a former special advisor. You've worked up close, seeing how government works and seeing the pressure that certain cabinet ministers go under. So, given all there's been about the difficult work environment, the pressure and the abuse, what is the reason that you have still decided to try and be an MP?
6: So, I mean, I have seen some of the discreetly. I think the, the thing that's also been quite horrific to see is the abuse that they've come under. And I, I think that's completely unacceptable. I mean, personally, I'm I'm quite resilient. I'm coming into this with my eyes open. I started my career on a trading floor. So I feel personally ready for it, but I still don't think anyone should have to face that in their, in their job. But the reason that I came into it is in 2017, uh, I was working in the private sector and I left that job to go and work in government to, to deliver Brexit. And it was about 15 months ago that I think along with the rest of the population, I started getting pretty fed up with how slowly things were going. And I decided that I wanted to try and help fix things from the front line. Um, So that was the real sort of keys in the ignition moment for me Uh, because I was never... I was never one of those young people that wanted to be an MP. I started my career in finance and and sort of never never really expected to be here at that at that age. But in the background, my family are all all sort of work for the NHS, uh, and I think growing up, I'd always seen them work really hard to serve their patients. And also, I'd seen the other side of. Of that, So at Christmas, I'm, I remember there was, always used to be lots of Christmas cards in our house of people writing to my mother, who was a GP, just saying, thank you so much for this thing that you managed to, to fix. And I think that left a really lasting impression on me. So when I think about being an MP now, um, I think of trying to provide that family doctor service where you, you can listen to problems and, and try and sort of help and solve, solve people's problems.
2: So Claire, when you actually told your friends and family that you were going for this and you're going to be a candidate, did any of them think that you were a bit mad?
6: <laughs> um, yes, yes. So on the whole, they've been very supportive. But I have had the odd comment that you know I must be I must be mad to do this. But on the whole, they I think they're very they're very proud
2: and you're also you look at your specific seat it's a slightly interesting situation you could say because you're stepping into sam jima's seat now he's left the party he's now standing in kensington and so what's it like stepping into i suppose an association where they, they may have been quite attached to their candidate but obviously they've chosen to go
6: so i think it's fair to say that when you when you're in a seat where there's been a defection there's there's Quite a lot of work to do to rebuild trust with people. It's it's an odd thing, I think, for people to to have voted for an individual, but for a party, and then for suddenly their MP not to be of that party anymore. Uh, you know, I'm quite lucky that when you talk to people, they've been they've been sort of incredibly receptive to the fact that I'm not going to do that, and they've listened to me, and that's great. But it's definitely. You can sort of feel here when you talk to people in the street that that level of trust is something that you'll need to work at to make sure that people feel that they can actually put their faith in you and that you'll live up to the promises that you've made. That's what I'm working on at the
2: moment. And then just finally, when it comes to your current seat, we're speaking to a few different candidates um, on this podcast and some appear to be in no-hope seats. Um, We've got a Brexit party candidate standing in a very heavy Remain seat who still thinks she might have a chance. But you almost have a, a different issue, which is your seat is seen as being safe. Now, I know people say there's no such thing as a safe seat, but given you've got a majority, which is looking pretty comfortable to defend. Do you have any nightmares that it could just go completely wrong anyway?
6: Yes, I mean, that would be that would be horrendous. I don't think anyone would forgive me, at least of all the good people of East Surrey. But on the whole, I think the most important thing is about trying to build relationships, trying to build trust, and trying to explain to people what the Conservatives are trying to do. So I think you have to focus on, on that and the route forward rather than thinking about the worst-case scenarios.
2: Thanks, Claire. Thank you to all my guests on this special edition of Women with Balls. And do join us again after the election when we'll be back in the traditional format of interviews.